You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1900th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 13th of October 2022. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin. The producer is Colin Holmes and your readers are Jill and Nick Gain. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. Suffolk households to get help with work to homes cut energy bills and save £4.8 million. Hospital with crumbling roof facing 13-year wait for repairs. Farmers fear more bird flu cases as migration season approaches. Distress as dog mess is found on graves in Suffolk Cemetery. Households across Suffolk could save on their energy bills and enjoy warmer homes thanks to a new £1.3 million county-wide project. It is estimated the scheme could see £50 million of work carried out to homes and generate combined potential savings for householders of nearly £4.8 million. Suffolk's public sector leaders, which includes all the councils in the county, have agreed funding to create a new Fuel Poverty Retrofit team as part of the Warm Home Suffolk scheme, helping those most affected by the cost of living crisis. More than 62,000 properties in the county are thought to have the worst energy performance certificates of E, F or G and an estimated 28% of homes, 95,000 households, are in fuel poverty, almost double the number in 2019. Alongside existing funding, the team will cost 1,296,000 £1, over three years. Measures could include the installation of insulation, fitting air source heat pumps and replacing single glazing. The new team will help secure funding, develop a pipeline of work and ensure the most vulnerable households benefit and also enforce minimum standards for the private rental sector, create a loan fund for those who are just above the financial eligibility cap and support the installer's supply chain. People can get help from Warm Home Suffolk if their gross household income is less than £30,000. Andy Drummond, chair of the Suffolk Environment Cabinet Members Group, said The new Fuel Poverty Retrofit Team is a proactive approach, retrofitting the most energy inefficient homes to be better insulated so that costs for households can be reduced long term through lower bills, warmer homes and better health. This money is a huge boost to warm home Suffolk and is going to make a big difference to hundreds of residents across Suffolk. The crumbling roof of West Suffolk Hospital will be replaced with an entirely new building before schedule repairs finish, new information reveals. NHS England has recently announced that crumbling hospital roofs, with some being held up by poles and planks, are not set to be replaced until 2035. However, West Suffolk Hospital has revealed that the damaged parts of its buildings will be replaced by a brand new hospital before the proposed repairs even finish. 
The 13-year time frame for repairs has, was discovered by a Freedom of Information request submitted by the Liberal Democrats to NHS England. Of 32 hospital buildings known to be built with reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, West Suffolk Hospital Foundation Trust has two. West Suffolk Foundation Trust revealed that plans for the new West Suffolk Hospital in Hardwick Manor are due to be completed in the latter half of this decade. This means that a brand new hospital will be built at least five years before the repairs. A West Suffolk Foundation Trust said, We are in the early stages of our journey to design and build a new hospital, which aims to replace the existing estate on Hardwick Lane. We remain on track to complete this work in the latter half of this decade. We are well advanced in undertaking significant and planned estates maintenance programmes to support our infrastructure and a rolling programme to regularly monitor and check the planks using the latest research and technology. It will remain in place until we move to a new hospital site. The new West Suffolk Hospital was picked by the government as one of 40 to be built before 2030. It will be created in a mature parkland setting covering an area of up to 100,000 square metres plus a multi-storey car park while Hardwick Manor will be converted for hospital uses. In the planning application for the new project it was noted that the current hospital which opened in the early 1970s is approaching the end of its serviceable life. Government vets are expecting a bird flu crisis blighting East Anglia to worsen in the coming months as a regional lockdown begins. UK Chief Vet Dr Christine Middlemiss said her department was seeing a growing number of cases in commercial farms and backyard birds across the country driven by high levels of the disease in wild birds and the start of the migration season was likely to exacerbate the problem. A lockdown is being imposed in the hotspot counties of Suffolk, Norfolk and parts of Essex from today to help stop its spread. Poultry farmers and captive bird keepers have been ordered to keep their birds indoors, whatever the size or type of flock. Unfortunately, we expect the number of cases to continue to rise over the coming months as migratory birds return to the UK bringing with them further risk of disease that can spread into our kept flocks, said Dr Middlemiss. We're taking action already by implementing regional avian influenza prevention zones and housing measures in the worst affected areas, but it is important that all bird keepers, wherever they are in the country, ensure that cleanliness and hygiene are at the forefront of their minds to keep their flocks safe and limit the impact of the outbreak. Heightened biosecurity measures have already been in place across the East Anglian area, designated as part of a regional avian influenza prevention zone, but the housing order takes it one step further. The UK is facing its largest ever outbreak of bird flu, with more than 170 cases confirmed across the country since late October 2021. So far in October alone, Suffolk has seen three cases, two near Bury St Edmunds and one at Hadley. Essex has seen four, one at Kelverdon near Braintree, two at Haybridge near Malden and another at Whitham. There have been a further ten in Norfolk. Disease control zones around outbreaks, where controls are ramped up, are currently in place at eight sites in Suffolk, six in Essex and 14 in Norfolk.
the risk to human health is very low. All bird keepers have been instructed to keep a close eye on their birds and observe good biosecurity at all times. Dog owners are being reminded that they must pick up after their pets after mess was found by people on loved ones' graves in Berries and Edmonds. West Suffolk Council has seen a rise in dog fouling at Berries and Edmonds Cemetery and said people have been left distressed after finding the mess on the graves. The cemetery is often used as a cut-through and is part of a circular dog-walking route. Visitors are also being asked to help catch the culprits by providing information to West Suffolk Council. Signs at the cemetery gates state that those visiting with dogs should keep them on a short lead and clear up after them. The signage also makes it clear that the cemetery is not for use as a recreational space. Given the cemetery is locked overnight, it is believed the offences have taken place during daylight hours. Councillor Robert Everett, Cabinet Minister for Communities at West Suffolk Council, said, This is not only unhygienic, but is causing distress to those visiting their loved ones. It also means taxpayers are picking up the cost of clearing up. Most dog owners are responsible and pick up after their pets, and we are warning those that don't that they will face a fine. We are also asking for intelligence so we can approach individuals who may be responsible to stop it. We cannot police the cemetery full-time, and information passed on to staff will help us be there when we think the problem is occurring. We are aware that people use the cemetery as a cut-through and as part of a circular dog-walking route. There is no problem with that if they clean up after their pets. And some general news now. Stress, depression, anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder experienced by Suffolk police officers made up nearly a quarter of all sickness at the county's force last year. The strain put on serving officers is at the centre of new figures which showed that in the last five years at Suffolk Constabulary the equivalent of 6,586 days were lost due to officers being signed off sick in relation to mental health. Senior police figures and the force have pledged to continue work to provide support for officers as the county saw a second year of falling figures. In 2021-22 111 officers from Suffolk were signed off because of psychological illnesses. Darren Harris, head of Suffolk Police Federation, said officers can only meet the needs of the public we serve if they are fit and well. The Health Secretary has revealed that Newmarket is among 10 places in England to receive government backing for new community diagnostic centres. Suffolk Coastal MP Theresa Coffey said... Today I'm announcing the approval of 10 new community diagnostic centres which are helping to bust the Covid backlogs by delivering vital tests, checks and scans in local areas. As part of a £15 million project, residents will have access to new MRI and CT scanners, upgraded X-ray and ultrasound suites and additional cardiology lung function and phlebotomy services. Community diagnostic centres are usually based in settings such as shopping centres and football stadiums, and the site in Newmarket will be located next to the current hospital in Exning Road. Proposals were backed by the Suffolk and North Essex Integrated Care Board in July this year, 
and building work will begin in April 2023. The Newmarket CDC is set to take its first patients in April 2024. NHS Suffolk and North East Essex Chief Executive Ed Garrett said, It's fantastic that the funding for a community diagnostic centre at Newmarket has today been approved. The range of tests available at Newmarket will enable earlier diagnosis and better outcomes for patients, helping to reduce health inequalities in West Suffolk. He added, The location for new CDC is ideal to support people living in Newmarket and surrounding districts to access diagnostic services, which we hope will be more convenient to them and save them from having to travel to their nearest hospital for tests. Theatre Royal Bury St Edmunds has given its first live patronage in a decade to a Newmarket stud owner whose philanthropic work has given millions of pounds to good causes. Patricia Thompson joins the likes of film, stage and television actor Timothy West and Dame Judi Dench by being given the prestigious honour by the Westgate Street venue. Through the Thompson Family Charitable Trust, one of the largest charitable foundations in the UK, Mrs Thompson has donated more than £70 million to medical, educational, social and artistic projects as well as charities. Owen Calvert-Lyons, the theatre's chief executive and artistic director, said This is the first time in ten years that we have offered a life patron role at Theatre Royal which shows the significance of these roles. Patricia Thompson is a great champion of the arts and has played a key role in supporting UK theatres over many years. She joins fellow life patrons such as Dame Judi Dench and Timothy West in helping Theatre Royal to continue to thrive. Mrs Thompson, who was awarded a CBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours List in 2020, purchased Newmarket's oldest stud farm, Cheverley Park Stud, in 1975 with her late husband David and has enjoyed huge success on and off the racetrack. On her life patronage, Mrs Thompson said, I'm honoured to join such luminaries as Dame Judi Dench and Timothy West. Theatre Royal is a magnificent example of Regency design and does wonderful work in bringing theatre to Bury St Edmunds and the wider community. Theatre Royal is a vibrant 202-year-old theatre built in 1819 and restored to its original Regency design in 2007 with a campaign backed by Sir Ian McKellen, Dame Judi Dench, Timothy West and many others. The Grade 1 listed building which is the only theatre in the National Trust portfolio, is reliant on fundraising to remain financially stable, raising 18% of its core income through fundraising each year. One of Suffolk's largest museums has capped a tumultuous year by winning a top award being voted the best in the county. The Food Museum at Stowmarket was named Large Museum of the Year by the Association of Suffolk Museums, after its controversial relaunch in the spring. The museum has been attracting thousands of visitors a year at its outdoor site in Stowmarket for 55 years as the Museum of East Anglian Life. However, in March it changed its name to reflect the importance of food production and agriculture, a move which prompted an outcry among many who felt that this threatened its East Anglian identity. A petition with more than 2,000 signatures was drawn up, but the move went ahead 
and officials have already hailed it as a great success. On Monday, the museum was named Large Museum of the Year at a ceremony at The Hold in Ipswich. In making the presentation, the association said, The winner of Large Museum of the Year award was selected by the judges largely because of the sheer number of partners and diversity of groups it works with. Lisa Harris, Collections and Interpretation Manager at the Food Museum, said, We're absolutely thrilled to have the recognition and support for all the work that has been achieved at the museum over the past year. None of this would have been possible without the hard work and commitment of our team of staff, volunteers and the communities that we have worked in partnership with to create exhibitions, activities, events and programmes. A Suffolk town is set to welcome its first ever sausage festival in celebration of its historical links to the local delicacy. Famed for its horse racing, Newmarket also holds the humble sausage in high regard and will hold its first sausage festival on Saturday, November the 5th. The event will take place during the weekly Saturday market at the Market Square car park with a variety of sausage-themed stalls alongside resident traders. A traditional treat to take home from the races since the Victorian era, sausages are the prize for the winner of Newmarket's oldest horse race, the Town Plate. A weekly consignment of sausages also used to be sent from Newmarket to Balmoral, and the Queen Mother regularly purchased a pack on her journeys between Sandringham and London. Discover Newmarket manager Tracy Harding said, Newmarket is well known for horse racing, yet we also have this very special association with the great British banger. Our festival promises to be lots of fun for all the family, while also encouraging people to create fresh, tasty food at home, minimise food waste and eat and shop in the town. The town's famed butchers are also getting involved in the celebration as pouters, tenants and musks have donated prizes to the festival Tombola. Local cafes and restaurants will be adding specially created sausage dishes, dishes to their menus in the week preceding the event, giving avid fans the all-round foodie experience. There will also be family fun and entertainment with free competitions for children, including a sausage pan race. Free sausage tastings and recipe cards will be available to inspire attendees to try their hand at honouring their links to the Newmarket Sausage. Councillor Susan Glossop, Cabinet Member for Growth at West Suffolk Council said, We're delighted to partner with Discover Newmarket to welcome this festival to the town. It will be a great addition to our events calendar as it offers family fun and entertainment. Plus it drives support for our loyal traders on the weekly Saturday market which will also be operating. The festival also promotes local businesses and industries showcasing their success. ITV news presenter Becky Jago will be turning on the Stowmarket Christmas lights this year. Along with Mayor Barry Salmon, the news presenter who grew up in the town and is a former pupil of Stowmarket High School will switch on the lights on Friday, November 25th at St Peter and St Mary's Parish Church from 6 o'clock. A variety of festive events will take place over the weekend, including the annual Christmas fair. The town centre Christmas tree, Coombs Ford Christmas tree and Christmas tree festival lights would all be turned on at the same time, 
with town centre venues providing food, drink and entertainment throughout the evening. The Stowe Market Christmas Fair will also run on Sunday, November 27th from 10 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. The fair will include market stalls offering gifts, treats and food and drink from a variety of local and regional traders, as well as an ice rink. There will also be fairground rides and street entertainment, including stilt walkers, carol singers and brass band musicians, while the Food Museum will be hosting Father Christmas and a pop-up bar in the barn. The museum will also have fairground rides, animals and stalls. At the John Peel Centre, there will be a festival music lineup, including performances from Stowe Chorale and Ipswich Reggae Choir and a recording fair, while the Regal Cinema will be showing classic Christmas films throughout the day. Over 360 trees are set for the Christmas Tree Festival at St Peter and St Mary's Church, while the Mix will have a craft market. A charity family fun area will be set up at the Red Gables, and children will be able to create seasonal crafts at Stowe Market Library. Free toy building workshops will also be available at St Peter's Hall, and the Stowe Market Lions Club will be hosting festivities at the Royal British Legion on Tavern Street. Bury St Edmunds has celebrated success at the RHS Britain in Bloom finals, extending its achievement at regional level to national awards. The Suffolk Town won the Gold Award for the Business Improvement District Town Centre and City Centre category, competing with seven other towns and cities around the United Kingdom. The Royal Horticultural Society also presented organisers with an additional award for innovation in community engagement. This immediately follows Bury St Edmund's success in the Anglia in Bloom Awards, where they received four gold awards, one silver gilt and two silver awards. Bury and Bloom coordinator David Irvin joked that they would need a bigger trophy cabinet, which he said is a lovely problem to deal with. The Britain in Bloom judges were particularly impressed with Bury St Edmund's commitment to being 100% peat-free since 2021, following two years of trials. The town was also given praise for the installation of a major rainwater harvesting scheme, which enables them to be self-sufficient when it comes to watering close to 500 hanging baskets and floral displays. Mr Irvin added, The overall impression we tried to create was one of a floral town tackling challenges in a changing climate while embracing 21st century technology. Berry and Bloom enjoys massive goodwill and is supported by the Business Improvement District, Our Berry St Edmunds, local business sponsors, the Town and District Council, as well as hundreds of volunteers. Despite the hot weather, the Britain and Bloom judges were treated during their summer visit to a tour of the Abbey Gardens by Berry Rickshaw team as they viewed the Peacock in the Park Community Art Project, the Central Beds and the Floral Labyrinth. An annual sports day hosted by RAF Mildenhall, dedicated to adults and children with special needs, featured 12 games. Participants enjoyed bowling, basketball shoot, tennis ball bounce, frisbee toss, ring toss, tennis ball shuffle run, football kick, obstacle course, American football throw, 50-yard run, 100-yard run and the wheelchair slalom. 
More than 200 volunteers from RAF Mildenhall, RAF Feltwell and RAF Lakenheath helped make the event a success for more than 130 athletes from approximately 20 schools who took part in the event. The day was the day concluded with a medal ceremony, leadership from both RAF Mildenhall, RAF Lakenheath as well as RAFM honorary commanders in the community presented awards. The event was first held in 1981 when Joan Mann, a Ministry of Defence employee who worked in the Public Affairs Office on RAF Mildenhall, sought out to establish a way to bring local community and military members together to work with special needs citizens. A Bury St Edmunds shopping centre is welcoming two new additions, Accessorise and Starling's Toys. Having previously been a part of the Monsoon Group at Ark Shopping Centre, an accessorised store will be returning to the complex later this year. The shopping centre's manager, Alan Hassel, said, Accessorise has always been a popular store at Ark Shopping Centre and I'm sure their return will be well supported by the community. We are proud to be the home of many responsible retailers and, as a founding member of the Ethical Trading Initiative, Accessorise join our long list of eco-conscious traders here at ARC. The second edition is Starling's Toys, which is opening its first store in Suffolk and would also bring a new Lego shop to the centre. Mark Cordell, Chief Executive of Bury St Edmunds Business Improvement District, said It's always great to see new businesses returning in vacant units. Even now, in difficult times, businesses are still opening in Bury St Edmunds. A home furnishing store has scooped two prestigious industry prizes. Glasswells has been named winner of the largest retail champion and outstanding bed store categories at this year's National Bed Federation Industry Awards. It was described by judges as one of the finest furniture retailers, not just in the UK, but maybe all of Europe. The National Bed Federation is a key UK industry and trade and trade association. NBF judges said from exceptional curb appeal, immaculate presentation, to merchandising and excellent product knowledge, Glasswells truly knows its products, customers and what is required to support staff to deliver the best possible service. Glasswells Managing Director Paul Glasswell said, We are thrilled with the awards. To be described as possibly one of the best in Europe makes me very proud. My grandfather started the business in 1946 and we have always strived to be the best home furniture from creating immaculate shopping environments to working closely with selected suppliers and investing in our people to offer the expert advice. Whilst all of the team has played its part in achieving these awards, special thanks go to Julie Valentine, our bed buyer, who has put tremendous effort into making Glasswells the outstanding bed store of the year. Suffolk runners were among thousands of people to run in the TCS London Marathon on Sunday to support local charities including GWIS and St Nicholas Hospice Care. Among those was Daniel Frost, who ran in memory of his late wife Lisa, who was diagnosed with bowel cancer. He was fundraising for St Nicholas Hospice Care, which looked after his wife in the final stages of her life. He completed the marathon with a time of 4 hours, 12 minutes and 41 seconds. 
Imogen Senior, head teacher of St Benedict's Catholic School in Bury St Edmunds, achieved a time of 5 hours 50 minutes and 29 seconds. The 45-year-old Lawshaw resident was raising funds for the Catholic Children's Society. Personal trainer Lucy Cronin, 28, from Bury, was also raising money for St Nicholas Hospice Care. She ran the marathon in 5 hours, 1 minute and 45 seconds. Lucy described her marathon experience as fantastic and said she would take on the challenge again. She has now surpassed her fundraising target of £2,000. Former Ipswich Town and Cambridge United footballer Ian Miller from Barrow achieved a time of 4 hours, 33 minutes and 48 seconds. He too was raising money for the hospice. World record holder Daniel Turner of Beck Row was taking on the marathon as part of a series of challenges for a charity in memory of his late fiancée. The 37-year-old was running in aid of Young Lives versus Cancer, having already generated £8,000 for the charity. He ran the marathon in 3 hours, 46 minutes and 48 seconds. Pascal Canavé from Maison Bleu was running for G-Wiz after being inspired by the charity's founder who tackled the 26-mile course in 2017. He completed the marathon in 5 hours, 19 minutes and 55 seconds. Gareth Isaacson of Red Lodge achieved a new personal best for the distance, though this was his first London marathon. He logged a time of 3 hours, 34 minutes and 17 seconds. Gareth, who had previously applied to run in the marathon 12 times, was running for children with Cancer UK. He said, it's not a personal best, but not quite the sub 3.30 I wanted. But the race itself was everything I dreamed of. The crowd and charities were amazing and the way this spurred all the runners on was the best thing about it. Even the motivation of other runners keeps you going. I also got my last Lucasade of the day from Anthony Joshua, so that was a great experience. An ink and toner cartridge recycling scheme is being trialled in Bury St Edmunds to fund life-saving equipment. The initiative is thanks to a businessman, Paul Hicklin, and the Business Improvement District in partnership with the Apex and, Ar and Ark Shopping Centre. Mr Hicklin from Berries and Edmunds has provided collection bins through his Mildenhall-based business, Complete Office Solutions. Access to the recycling bins at the Apex is during the venue's usual opening hours. Ink and Tony toner cartridges can be dropped in the bins and will be recycled to help raise funds to purchase and maintain 24-hour public access to defibrillators. It is hoped that after a trial period, more businesses will join the scheme with public access or in-house bins. Nearly 200 students took advantage of a chance to look behind the scenes of the horse racing industry. Dubai Future Education Week, run by Godolphin, in collaboration with the Jockey Club and the Racing to School charity, aims to inspire young people to become fans of the sport and maybe one day work for the industry. As part of the scheme, more than 180 Year 8 pupils from Newmarket Academy had the exclusive chance to get a look at the racing industry around the town, visiting the National Horse Racing Museum, the Tattersall's Sales, Rossdale's Equine Hospital and Godolphin's state-of-the-art Dallam Hall Stud. The week of horse-related activities is a part of the Newmarket Academy Godolphin Beacon project which provides school children aged between 11 and 16 
opportunities to get a taste for the sport and the careers it can offer. Penny Taylor, charity manager at Godolphin, said that the scheme has a crucial role in helping to persuade more people to consider a career in racing at a time when the industry is facing a considerable skills shortage. She said, Godolphin's charitable programme aims to promote an awareness, passion and care for thoroughbreds while nurturing our industry and its infrastructure. We have a range of different initiatives each year which are all about raising awareness about racing and giving the children an understanding of the opportunities racing can give them. Charlie Appleby, Godolphin's principal trainer, said that the events are hugely important for both horses that can spend some time around children and students who can benefit from learning about horses. He added, it's been fantastic to see the children from Newmarket Academy coming up over the last few weeks and doing lots of different things. At the end of the day, if we're producing horses for the future, we need somebody to help out and care for them so they come hand in hand and full credit has to go to everyone at Godolphin who's guiding them. It's refreshing to see both here and on the race course. Barry Snedman's performer, who created a popular music hall group and was an irreplaceable ray of sunshine, has died aged 87. Gloria Stewart founded four-piece The Barclay Squares, who played to packed audiences at Theatre Royal Barry Snedman's with their beautifully costumed annual shows. With Mary Alexander, Brian Thurlow and accompanist Joyce Frost, they performed across the country and made several TV appearances. Brian said, She was the most incredible person. Not only was she a great actress, singer and director, she created countless period-style costumes and extravagant hats for the stage. She was a talented painter and the loveliest, most glamorous person you could meet. She had a heart of gold and will be fondly remembered and missed by many people in the Berry area and indeed across East Anglia. Born in 1934 in Brixton and originally known as Gloria Gorringe, she worked in Dickens and Jones department store in Regent Street and would meet stars leaving the London Palladium through the stage door. Having moved to Bury between 1965 and 66 and always keen on music hall songs, she came up with the idea of forming a company in 1972. She approached Mary, Brian and Joyce, all of whom she had worked with at the Theatre Royal. Over the next 17 years, the Barclay Squares developed a large following and she created their costumes. The group went on to perform in fully cast musical shows at the Theatre Royal and the Spa Pavilion in Felixstowe. Directed by Gloria, the shows featured her daughter, Laura, as well as a host of performers. Gloria's son, Nick, the Theatre Royal stage manager for many years, devised the lighting. Aged 84 in 2019, she directed her final production, a music hall show at the Theatre Royal, raising thousands for the venue. Granddaughter Grace, 25, said, Gloria was the best person in any room. She loved everyone she met, from the checkout ladies to the postman, and you couldn't help but love her back. She will be very sadly missed by her family and many friends, as an irreplaceable ray of sunshine. If you met Gloria Gorringe, then you were one of the lucky ones. Her funeral is at West Suffolk Crematorium on October the 20th at 2pm. She also leaves son Steve and six grandchildren.
The chief executive of the town's business support organisation is to remain in the role, despite an earlier announcement that he was moving on. Mark Cordell announced on social media last week he had decided to continue in the top spot at Bury St Edmunds Improvement District, BID, a position which he has held for more than a decade. Mr Cordell had previously said he felt the time was right to hand over the reins of the organisation, which also runs the brand Our Bury St Edmunds, which markets the town. But last Friday he announced on Twitter he had reversed his decision after talks with Chair Maria Broadbent of Casa Restaurant. He wrote, Given the current economic uncertainty, we agreed that it would not be prudent for me to stand down as the CEO at this time. So it's business as normal at our Bury St Edmunds. Mr Cordell was appointed Chief Executive Officer in 2011. BID, a non-profit organisation, represents more than 400 town businesses which pay a levy for membership from which funds are used for marketing and events. Mr Cordell had earlier announced that he was to step down at its annual general meeting in July. He said he had planned to leave in the new year, giving his successor enough time to take over the job. Our Berry St Edmunds is behind events such as the Food and Drink Festival, the Whitson Fair and Motorsport East, all of which won record attendance this year. It also launched the Our Berry St Edmunds gift card and the Loyal Free app. Future plans include creating an online virtual high street platform, taking marketing organisation Bury St Edmunds and beyond fully under its wing and an autumn and winter visitor campaign. Mr Cordell added, I started to realise that I was going to miss the role more than I originally thought and there are a number of exciting initiatives I wanted to see through and work with our members on to help them through yet another challenging time. Chair Maria Broadbent said, I know it was a soul-search decision, but I am very relieved that Mark's 12 years of experience are going to be around to navigate the uncertainty and challenges ahead. A Barry Snedman's man has been jailed for three years following a string of motorcycle thefts that total more than £30,000. Ricky Davis, 31, of Maundy Close, appeared before Ipswich Crown Court on September 29th. It follows guilty pleas at an earlier hearing to three counts of motorcycle thefts in Brandon in December 2020, in Bury in October and November the same year. At further hearings, Davis also pleaded guilty to thefts in June 2021 in Thetford and a fifth guilty plea in Bury St Edmunds in August 2021. Once charged with these offences, he went on to engage with the Operation Converter team an initiative aimed at, at encouraging offenders to admit their crimes and admitted a further 12 thefts of motor vehicles that took place between October 27, 2020 and October 10, 2021. Duncan Etchells of the Operation Converter team said, Davis had a noticeable modus operandi of arranging to meet people who would travel from all over the country to sell their motorbikes after they'd advertise them online. Davis would then meet them and, under the pretense of taking the bike for a test ride, would then ride off on the bike, <laughs> never to be seen again. His crimes attracted a lot of social media attention in the various Nedmonds and Thetford areas over the period of his criminality, but to see him behind bars will hopefully give some closure for those people he stole from. 
Figures released by Suffolk Police have shown there has been a significant drop in motor vehicle crime in the county in the last two years. Comparing the 12 months from July 2020 to June 2021 with July 21 to June 22, there was a drop of 12.8% in theft from a motor vehicle, while theft of a motor vehicle saw a drop of 11% over the same period. This is the best figure for the east of England region, and for the theft of motor vehicle, it is the only force of the six to see a decline. In a recent inspection by His Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary, the force was graded as good in six areas of business out of ten, including preventing crime and disrupting serious organised crime, with the report stating it has well-established process for managing organised crime. We begin our popular letters section with these thoughts from Barry Peters, editor of the Berry Free Press. Human spirit, dogged determination and a will to thrive are all things featured in this newspaper week in and week out. But this week's array of those going the extra mile has left me speechless. The thought of running a London marathon, no, the thought of running, is something I push very firmly to the back of my mind. But I take my hat off to those who complete the gruelling 26 miles across London in aid of one cause or another. Then there are those crazy souls like Newmarket's Ben Blows, who a few years back completed the course with a kitchen appliance strapped to his back. A true man of steel, if ever I saw one. Look even deeper in today's paper and you find a new date announced for the girls' night out. Walking six, or the mightier eleven miles, is not to be sneered at, and every one of these women will have a heartfelt reason for pounding the streets of West Suffolk. We all salute you for that. Finally, our ultimate modern example of human spirit, the late Queen Elizabeth II, MP Jo Churchill recounts her part in the funeral procession and signs off with the Queen's honest belief that we will always come through tough times. That now more than ever, is something we can all hold on to and cherish as part of her enduring legacy. Alan Jewell of Stowmarket writes that pigeons are a health and safety matter. Regarding the letter from E. Martin, September 28th, at first reading I thought it was a fuss about a small matter of a pigeon dropping faeces on his great-granddaughter's hood. On further thought, I too have been disgusted at the number of pigeons across the towns of Suffolk. A short search showed the following information. Pigeon droppings are not only unsightly, their acid content can eat into soft stone and cause long-term damage to buildings. The nest droppings and feathers also block gutters and rainwater pipes causing water damage. Their droppings can lead to severe hazards on pavements, especially for the elderly, and carry pathogenic organisms. Pigeons carry many potentially infectious diseases, such as salmonella, tuberculosis and ornithosis, a mild form of psittacosis, pneumonia-like symptoms. They are also a source of allergens, which can cause respiratory ailments like pigeon fancy's lung and allerg allergic skin reactions. There is potential for all these illnesses to be spread to people throughout contact with pigeon droppings, dandruff and feathers. Pigeon parasites. 
or where dead, infected pigeons get into food or water sources. The feral pigeon breeds throughout the year and nests may be found in any month. Usually, two eggs are laid. Fledgling takes place about four and a half weeks later. A new clutch can be laid when the first young are 20 days old. Therefore, up to nine broods may be produced per year by just one female pigeon. In view of the above, I agree with Mr Martin that it is a health and safety matter which Suffolk councillors should act upon, instead of not even being on any council agenda. I uh, As already asked, why is this problem ignored by councils? A serious cull is needed on the many pigeons being a nuisance and spreading many diseases. As far as people feeding the birds, pigeons can only feed on flat ground. They cannot hover or hang from bird feeders like wild birds do. Therefore, if you wish to feed wild birds, simply put their food into bird feeders, not flat bird tables, hanging in any suitable place which is off the ground. Please also remember that rats are encouraged by feeding on any bird pl food placed on the grounds. Perhaps at least one councillor in Suffolk may care to reply. John Dell of Shotley writes, Graham Day's recent letter from the East Anglian Daily Times on October the 3rd on the Stowmarket Air Cadets Memorial to the 1941 crash of a Wellington bomber at Great Fimbra is a timely reminder of the cost of war with Remembrance Day fast approaching. In his letter, Graham mentions visiting our war cemetery in Shotley, which is certainly worth a visit, as he says. It really does bring home the cost of war. Like Graham, I have visited war cemeteries in East Anglia, as well as Belgium, France and their neighbouring countries over the years. Many of the cemeteries dwarf those here. Today we see those cemeteries growing in Ukraine and filled with civilians as well as soldiers. It was the experience of centuries of European wars, culminating in two world wars within 25 years, that led to thinkers and statesmen across Europe looking for a solution. They, Winston Churchill among them, felt that if countries came closer together both economically and diplomatically, then it would make war, if not impossible, extremely difficult. The European Union was created to do exactly that and has given the EU nations their longest period of peace for centuries and is one of its greatest successes. Those that tore us out of the EU often crowed about their desire to break up the EU as their ultimate aim. Disruption is an aim in itself because it brings profit to those that can exploit it. Oscar Wilde recognised people like this as those that knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. Their disruption has put this hard-won peace at risk. We don't want or need any more war cemeteries. That would be too high a price to pay. Mark Sutcliffe of Bilderston believes Tor Tories should move over. I have been writing letters to your paper since 2016, warning of the perils of right-wing politics. Donald Trump has come and gone, and so has Boris Johnson but only after huge damage has been done. Nigel Farage is now a non-entity, at best a minor celebrity. Now we have the hapless Liz Truss, forced on us by a tiny group of Conservative Party members. What could possibly go wrong? After 12 years of Tory-led chaos, it really is time the Tories move over and give someone else a chance. 
The energy price crisis, now compounded with the high interest rates, will decimate ordinary people's finances, sometimes to destruction. If Liz Truss and her cabinet of right-wing zealots think they have the answer, put it before the nation and let the people have a say as to their choice of leadership. I don't want my life dictated by a handful of out-of-touch, wealthy Tories who are completely insulated from changes or stand to gain from irresponsible tax cuts for the rich. General election, please. Our next letter is from Tim Davis of Hopton and is titled, Matt, Please Oppose Damaging Policies. Copy of a letter sent to Matt Hancock, MP. I trust you recall your visit to Hopton last November when you assisted in the planting of Hopton healing wood. In doing so, you appeared to show genuine concern for nature and the environment. I now read that the current government, as part of the rollback of EU regulations, intends to dramatically weaken environmental protection laws. An attempt in Parliament to stop the water companies dumping raw sewage in our rivers and sea was stymied by your party voting against the amendment. Further, the creation of at least 38 investment zones, while encouraging much-needed investment in our ailing nation, comes with the reduction in environmental protections in the planning process. It now seems likely that environmental land management schemes that not only help to protect wildlife but also assist beleaguered farmers are set to be scrapped. The damage caused by these policies would be extreme. It is hard not to deduce that the current incarnation of the Conservative Party has lost interest in crucial environmental issues to the detriment of us all and our children. I urge you as my MP to oppose these highly damaging policies and to give credence to your supposed environmental credentials. Annie Wadilove of Hunston writes in praise of police officers who came to her rescue. Statistics show that 24 drivers a week are hit when in refuge areas on motorways and while standing in a bramble bush on the side of the A14 at 10.30 at night, having had a tyre blowout. I could well understand how that happens. It was terrifying. Therefore, I want to say a huge thank you to the two police, traffic police cars who turned up so quickly and dealt with me so reassuringly and effectively. Escorting me at 10 o'clock, 10 miles an hour, to a safe place, ensuring I had help on the way and even helping to change the tyre while they waited with me. The police seem to get only bad press at present, but I cannot praise the call handler and the two officers who came to my rescue enough and wanted to say so out loud. How many times a day do millions of police officers do just that, a great job, and never get a mention? Thank you and please keep up the good work. You save lives every day and we are very grateful even if we don't say it enough. Karen Ellis of Stowmarket writes that reform is needed now to help private renters. Private renters feel ignored by politicians, yet research by homelessness charity Shelter shows that our views on housing will influence the next general election. To give a local example, 57% of private renters in Ipswich say housing policies will be a factor when deciding who to vote for at the next general election. Housing security? Yes, please. Call it home without anxiety weighing me down? 
Yes, please. Years of promises to reform our broken renting system are meaningless until changes become law. The government must bring forward the Renters' Reform Bill. Renters in our community need it now. In her letter, Margaret Meller of Barry St Edmunds says, Flats should be demolished and rebuilt properly. It is inconceivable that in the 21st century, a block of award-winning flats, Goodfellows, built only 18 years ago, could have developed such faults as to be uninhabitable. Taking the human body as an, as an analogy, removal of the eyes, windows, the doors, mouth and the staircase, spine, would leave little more than an empty carcass and should, in the long run, be knocked down to the ground and rebuilt properly. Before moving to Bury St Edmunds 18 years ago, my partner lived in a block of flats built in 1936 and, apart from the removal of perfectly, perfectly functioning crittle windows and replacing them with double-glazed general maintenance, they are still very much sought after at approaching 90 years old. They don't build them like they used to, comes to mind. Graham Days from Stowmarket says, Letter made me smile. Clifford Davies' letter, always worth getting out from the East Anglian Daily Times on October the 6th, made me smile. In his letter, he recounts his experiences of a morning walk from home into the bustling centre of Stowmarket. Not so much the Canterbury Tales, but the Stowmarket Tales, mentioning his encounters with other residents and activities he observed. From events closer to home, Clifford has now developed a subgenre, i.e. things happening around the corner from home. The icing on the cake of his walk, returning home on a new bus. That makes a change. Definitely two pluses. We end our letters section with two short letters, the first of which is from Stephen Withers of Haverhill. Unanswered letters to MP. I have now sent four emailed letters to my MP this year without receiving a response other than an automatic acknowledgement. Are our elected representatives under any obligation to reply to their constituents? And finally, Bob White of Thetford poses the question, why does app cost more in Berry? When possible, I pay for car parking via my mobile app when visiting towns around the country. It's normally a little cheaper, understandable, as less staff will be required for this facility. However, can anyone explain to me why it actually costs more in Berries and Edmunds car parks? I have contacted the council on two occasions with no response. Our first feature is from Berries and Edmunds MP Jo Churchill, in which she describes her experience taking part in Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's funeral. Over the years, many across the Berries and Edmunds constituency had the good fortune to meet the late Queen Elizabeth II and fondly recount their memories of her various visits to Stowmarket and Bury St Edmunds. Throughout her long and remarkable reign, she touched so many lives and supported our nation and its people through good times and bad. Although I never got the chance to meet the Queen, on the 6th of September I was appointed by the Prime Minister and confirmed by Her Majesty to the position of Vice-Chamberlain of the Household of the Sovereign in the Commons. As is the case for me, the office holder is usually a government whip. 
one of the primary duties of this office is that I write to the monarch daily about the business of the house to keep them informed. We, the Treasurer, Comptroller and Vice-Chamberlain, have the privilege of participating in state events and are known by the title White Staves when on duty. In fact, not white at all, the stave looks more like a snooker cue. Such an occasion is the death of a monarch, and it's with huge sense of sadness that whilst being appointed by Her Majesty, I would never get to meet and talk to her personally. Events unfolded at speed with the organisation of the lying in state and the reception of the coffin into Westminster Hall, followed by the state funeral on Monday the 19th. It is uncontroversial to say that we do state occasions in a way that others can only marvel at, which is probably why the event was watched by some 4.5 billion people across the world. The horses gleamed, as did the breastplates and helmets, and the busbies and bearskins made the soldiers look even taller. We took our place in Westminster Abbey at 8.30am in the morning. World leaders and royal families came through the door, showing that even in death Her Majesty had the incredible ability to bring people and the world together. Our county held its own. Behind me I noticed the badge of the RAF regiment, as I did throughout the day. As we know, one of the pallbearers at the coffin reception had also been from Berry, chosen because he was among the best in his regiment. As we sang, The day thou gavest, Lord is ended, the Lord is my shepherd, and love divine all loves excelling, the Abbey sent the message to the world over of a life incomparably lived in faith and service. The strains of Elgar played as the office holders removed themselves out of Abbey and into the procession in front of the state gun carriage. The walk then began around Parliament Square, through horse guards, along the Mall, and towards Wellington Arch. As we came down the Mall, the sun glittered off the Victoria Memorial and we walked past members of the royal household with grief etched on their faces. Walking up Constitution Hill, your breath caught as cannons fired. When the coffin was removed from the gun carriage and put into the hearse for the last trip to Windsor, they played God Save the Queen for the final time. It was hard to blink the emotion away. Along the journey to Windsor, the motorway and streets thronged with people gathered to witness the proceedings and bid farewell. On arrival, we took a short comfort break, had a glass of water and half a Twix, and off we set again. As we turned into the long walk, you could smell the lilies and flowers that had been laid along either side of the path. Two-thirds of the way down, as the cannons were firing in the distance, I spotted the Queen's fell pony standing proud with the black numner on, adorned with the gold E2R. Beside her stood her groom, both in mourning. They looked as though they had lost a dear friend. We carried on the walk, keeping up with the heralds in their finery. Beautifully to time and with utter care, Her Majesty's coffin was borne into St George's Chapel for the very last part of the journey. This time we sang, All my hope on God is founded. Christ is made the sure foundation, a more moving, intimate service, but as in the Abbey displaying the late Queen's strong faith and that there is something better beyond. As we travelled those five miles in frock coats, hopefully the white staves played their part on behalf of those we represent in saying our nation's goodbye to a truly inspirational woman. We stayed in mourning for the rest of the week, 
beyond the funeral as part of the household and I have assumed my duty writing to the King about parliamentary business. Repeated throughout the day was the Queen's belief that we shall always come through difficult times, something she believed and shared with us through her 70 years. I am sure she is right. This week, local historian, author and guide Martin Taylor reflects on a touch of Victorian splendour and Blanchard's planter in St Mary's Square, Berries and Edmonds. Set on a small green in St Mary's Square, which was the town's horse market of yesteryear, is a wonderful planter from 1874. It was designed by Mark Henry Blanchard, but who commissioned it has been lost in the midst of time. However, it was probably the town's corporation. Consisting of an ornamental terracotta centrepiece with entwining swan necks and four pedestal floral urns, when planted up, it looks stunning. Blanchard was born in Portsea, Hampshire, in 1816, and served his apprenticeship with the well-established company of Code and Seeley. Eleanor Code had perfected a formula for fire clay that could stand up to the harshness of the English winter, frosts and all. With Victorian love of classical art forms and the inexpensive method of production, these types of garden ornaments became very popular. In 1839, Blanchard set up his own business in Blackfriars Road, London, and using some of the code moulds from the sale of that company in 1843, his work soon became fashionable, so much so that he took a commission from Buckingham Palace after successfully exhibiting at the Great Exhibition of 1851. He also supplied architectural ornamentation to the Victoria and Albert Museum, which had opened in 1852. Following the royal patronage, many of the landed gentry opted for Blanchard's garden adornments. Gradually, Blanchard moved away from the lighter colours favoured by the code era, a stronger depth of colour being used in his many designs, from urns to docks. He would continue to trade until around 1870. The Victorian era had a love of sentimentality. You could spread it like butter on toast. In need of repair, the planter was restored in 2010, thanks to joint corporations between St Edmunds Remelvoy's Choir, sorry, Berry Council, the Berry Society, and the Town Trust. A new stem of the central element of the planter had to be manufactured. Today, his works have found renewed fame and are commanding considerable sums of money. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Sheila, Colin, Jill and Nick, it's goodbye. Bye.
You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.